I've been more or less connected with Cambridge all my life. I came here as an undergraduate. Then I went away for many years, travelled to India and so on. And now I've come back to it in my old age, and I'm very glad to come back. I think it's a place for the very, uh, very young and the very old. The middle-aged people ought to go away and get other experiences. It's my general feeling about Cambridge. I'm very thankful to be here myself. And the particular college where I am, King's, of course, has got immense beauty. It has on the one side the chapel. It has on the other side what's to me a very precious tradition that the old people and the young can meet here very easily and without self-consciousness. It's quite easy for people of my age to meet undergraduates and they don't seem to mind. That, I think, is one of the reasons why I'm fond of this place. I don't know how much it's actually helped me in my writing. I don't think it's, well, I've suggested before, I don't think it's a place in which a writer ought to remain in. I'm quite sure he ought to go out into the world and meet more types. I was going to say people of more classes, but of course in Cambridge you can now meet people of all classes. But uh, mostly selected intellectuals. It's most necessary for the writer and for everyone else to go all over the place. It's my general feeling about it. And oddly enough, it was Cambridge that uh, first set me off writing. And in this very room where I, where I now am, there was at one time my tutor, a man called Wed, and it was he who suggested to me I might write he did it in the most informal way. He said in a sort of drawling voice, I really don't see why you shouldn't write. And I, being very diffident, was delighted with this remark. And I thought, well, after all, why shouldn't I write? And I did. And it is really owing to Wed and to that start at Cambridge that I've written. I might have started for some other reason. The voice of E.M. Forster. It is difficult, I think, to pay a quick tribute to any writer but I think in Forster's case, this is not quite so. Because one has to look so far outside the present and even the recent past to find his work. For his published novels, beginning with Where Angels Fear to Tread, 1905, and A Passage to India, 1924, were written so long ago that one is left over the years with more than a fair share of criticism. But somehow, while much has been written, it may be fair to say that he has proved an elusive target for his critics. Some, like Catherine Mansfield, have been quite prepared to be bluntly disparaging. As when she says, E.M. Forster never gets any farther than warming the teapot. Others, like Cyril Connolly, have suggested that he is alive because his books, many years old now, are again going forward among intelligent readers. F.R. Leavis notes a lack of force, of robustness and vitality, and, most surprisingly, I think, a lack of intelligence. And K.W. Gransden, who has written a short book on Forster in 1962, has written, indeed, in another direction altogether, because he says, Forster's influence permeates English letters, the prose of Isherwood, Plummer, Connolly, and the novels of Elizabeth Bowen, Angus Wilson, and Iris Murdoch. So a novelist, writing much of his work during Edwardian days, before wireless, TV, or the aeroplane, before even the motor car, and in the latter days of Henry James, is credited with a great influence, entirely perhaps outside his own social context, and a name mentioned 
very, very often in connection with Forster is that of the eminent Irish novelist Elizabeth Boyne. And we have her with us this evening in the studio. Elizabeth Boyne, did you know E.M. Forster personally? I did. I had the pleasure of seeing him, I think, only three times. The third time, he and I and a lot of other people were staying in a country house over a weekend in the war. And even if I hadn't had the happiness of being two, three days in his company, those two other times, he had a wonderful power when he was there. You felt you knew him. It wasn't just a sort of superficial contact. He was quite alarming in his way because he was so gentle, so civilised, but he he was all the um, all the grace and the irony which comes out in his work, I think, were in his person. You liked him very much, I obviously. I liked him tremendously, yes. When were you first aware of him as a writer? Well, rather early on in my life, as a schoolgirl, that was d- d- during the First World War, and um, some friend of mine brought back um, a collection of his short stories, this celestial omnibus. And we, um, from then on, became tremendous enthusiasts for him. We got hold of Howard's End and two or three of the novels. But what is intriguing now was we all took for granted. We didn't for a moment think that he was a man. We used to think, what does E.M. stand for? Is it... Ethel Mary or Edith Maud or Elizabeth something or other. And that was no reflection on him, but it was the first time we'd ever read as unsophisticated girls that sort of work from the pen of a man, I think. Well, interesting here, I think, he was reared, I gather, by by women, and his novels uh, reflect this in in a quite extreme way. Would you agree? I would indeed. And uh, I think the... um, he must have had quite a streak of the f- f- feminine in him, in, in in a pleasing way. But um, I would say that the feminine characters in his work are more impressive. They are not quite complete somehow, but they they have an extraordinary existence. Um, he once wrote himself of André Gide that he's subtle and elusive, and he sets great store and charm. Would you agree that this might be written, in fact, of Foster himself? I think it might be, but there was something more than that. I don't think uh, he is subtle. I don't think he's e- elusive. Was that the word he used, Vajid? And uh, I think his charm, he must have been aware of it, the charm of his style, but I think he often applied it for strong purposes. Now, talking about strength, he was criticised, as I said earlier, by Catherine Mansfield. She was talking in connection with Howard's End, and she said that he never gets further than warming the teapot. Now, here's the very same man who has written in aspects of the novel that he finds death a congenial way to end a plot. Yes. Uh, not much of softness there, no. would you say? No, I don't agree with um, Catherine Mansfield over that. I think he filled the teapot with fiery things occasionally. How, uh, do you, how do you see him as a writer? How, how would you place him? Um, do you mean how would I e- evaluate him? I should call him a wonderful, more than a great writer. I think to use the word great is most dangerous, but um, there's something miraculous and unusual and intensely illuminating often about his work. 
and um, if one is to measure him against Balzac or Charles Dickens or Tolstoy, Proust even, um, maybe he lacks some in some sort of size, but that does not in the least reflect on the fact that he was totally original and I think a great gift to our civilization and our feeling for art. His last novel, A Passage to India, was published in 1924 and now he appears to be going through a great autumn again, or is it a spring yes. of interest yes. again? How would you account for this, that young people today are reading him? I think it's excellent. I think it may, that his intense interest in personal relationships um, may come agreeably to a generation of young people, in America particularly, but also in here, who have a great dread of being exterminated as individuals. I don't mean blown up by a bomb, but being pressurised into a uniform kind of life that sometimes a democracy seems to, to make for, and that they love to have revived in them this particular faith in unique things, individuals being unique and the relations between them being unique. I would suggest that is quite possible. <coughs> and now, as I said earlier on, your name in various histories of literature keeps being linked with that of Forster. How would you say he has influenced your work, or do you see well, this? He certainly link? has influenced it. Uh, I was thinking the other day, it was the appearance of a page of a Forster novel always pleased me so much. It sounds a strange thing to say, but the, the dialogue and the beautiful proportion of the paragraphs he seemed to me to keep two things in play at the same time. I think uh, uh, the dialogue he wrote was some of the best we've ever had in any language. I was very much interested, perhaps you're going to bring this up, by his saying that J Jane Austen influenced him. Because mm. he and Jane Austen, I would call respectively the king and the queen of, of the dialogue. And, um, oh, his imaginativeness and his irony... And he's occasionally unkindness. I think he's occasionally unkind and unfair. And when I was young, I think most people, when they are young, were rather impatient with uh, society in general. And those oblique stabs he occasionally gives, uh, I think, appealed to me. But if anyone took the trouble to read my early work, I think they would find a strong. I think I not only was influenced by him, I unconsciously or perhaps consciously even imitated him. Would you say, in fact, if we could take it a stage further, that some of your characters um, are almost influenced by characters in his novels? Yes, I think so. Or they're certainly influenced by his way of seeing his mm. characters. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, my field was entirely different, my sort of Anglo-Irish um, field. I, I lived a much more, by choice, I suppose you could call it crude. I didn't leave, lead that very sheltered, rather ironical existence than in the Cambridge Circle and in the Bloomsbury Circle. So that, um, substantially, in outline, I don't know that my characters them in themselves could resemble his, but I, I do think that the way he saw character, the way he presented character, and the evaluation that he, he gave to character impressed me tremendously, particularly in my first 20 years, perhaps, as a writer, or first 10 years. Many people wonder... Uh, as to why he stopped writing novels, and I think we might perhaps go back to the tape of Forster now and hear yes. what he says himself about this. I'd love to. Generally speaking, I, I haven't written as much as I'd like to. I think that's my one regret. And, of course, I would have been glad to, to, to write more novels after the passage of India. But one thing 
it sold so well, and I write for two reasons, uh, partly to get, make money and partly to win the respect of people whom I respect. And novels would have, more novels would have certainly made me better known. And somehow I dried up after the passage. I wanted to write, but didn't want to write novels. And that's really too long a story. But I think one of the reasons why I stopped writing novels is that the social, the social aspect of the world changed so very much. I'd been accustomed to write about the old vanished world with its homes and its family life and its comparative peace. All that went. And though I can think about it, I cannot um, put it into fiction form. I expect there are other reasons why I dried up. But I haven't dried up in other ways. I've written a biography, for instance, of my great aunt. I'm awfully conceited, let me tell you that. I'm very glad to have written my novels and have no particular regrets about them. But I would have been glad to write, to write more of them. I feel very differently towards them. I'm delighted the passage to India had, had a success and that it was influential because I believe the political side of it is the side I wanted to express, although it's not primarily a political book. I don't think it's the novel I like best. I like best one that's not very popular, perhaps called The Longest Journey. I think there I got nearer to putting down what I'd got inside me and wanted to say. And as for the other, I see how its end is all right, but I sometimes get a little bored with it. There seems too much, too many social nuances there. And the other two, the mainly Italian, they are where angels fear to tread and a room with a view. I still enjoy those because I still enjoy Italy. I'm afraid this is rather a conceited part, a conceited account of my work. But anyhow, as regards writing, I am rather conceited. And incidentally, I have enjoyed writing. I've never found it a trial or an ordeal of suffering, as some writers do. Elizabeth Boyne, would you like to comment on this question of drying up? Yes, I can comment on it in two ways. Its effect on me, which was rather to set me against him, I felt a novelist with his powers, that there must be that he deserted his post. I can't understand anyone who can write as he can, not wanting to go on through thick and thin. And I rather... um, when people said, oh, the world now is so awful, it's upset him, he's so sensitive he can't write, that gave me, filled me with a certain Irish impatience. Um, his, his reason, I suppose it was that, I think perhaps people of my um, generation, which is junior to him, were more happily situated because we had our childhoods in the so-called secure world. But ever since then we've taken... Change for granted. We've lived through two wars and we've learned to scramble about and adapt ourselves as persons. And I suppose to a certain extent we've adapted ourselves as artists. And it seems to me that an artist should be able to take what comes. But that, I don't want it to seem an unkind criticism of Foster, but I sometimes used to see him there and say, you old thing, why do you stop? What's the matter? And I never cared for his subsequent work nearly so much, all his essays. Well, I was going to bring you on to this. Oh, yes. 
that you feel there's a change in texture, do you, in style and so on? Yes. Well, I feel that a sort of soft option in a way. I like the aspects of the, of the novel immensely. And he did a lovely um, book about Alexandria, where he was during the First War. But uh, some of the essays in Abinger Harvest and um, Two Chairs for Democracy, they were always fascinating. They were full of charm, but I didn't always agree with them. Mm. And uh, I just felt plain cross, that's all I can say, cross (laughs) with him for going out of business. Would you see his own style as a novelist as being greatly reflected in what he says about novelists in aspects of the novel? Very much indeed. It's awfully interesting. I think a book on the novel by a novelist is always interesting, and I think he particularly reflects his own um, power, his own manner, his own way of seeing things. He certainly doesn't intend to idealise it, but he does. There couldn't be a more perfect, indirect sort of piece about the... You you have written a piece yourself, Notes on Writing a Novel. Yes. In which uh, you talk about... I'm sorry to quote yourself, actually. Mm. You talk about Mm. the sense of place and the importance of place that... um, I think you said, nothing can happen nowhere, yes. and the locale of the happening always colours the happening, yes. and so on. Would you think this, would you see this in, in Foster's work? Oh, tremendously. It was one of the things that um, I forgot to mention before, that this feeling, I don't think I took that from him, because I think it's a thing you're inborn with. But his feeling, every scene in all of the novels, is very strongly coloured. It's most important. He's a very, I would call him a very... A visual person, so that one sees what happens. But I also have got this. Uh, I went so far as to say to somebody once, I hope not in print, that places were almost more important to me than individuals than people. But all his all his novels are saturated in place, aren't they? Uh, yes, and e- even mm. the, the very names, Passage to India, yes. Howard's End, A Room yes. with a View. Yes. They've all got this they place all, when they we l- them. L- locate by their titles tremendously and not so much of course where angels fear to trade and the longest journey but the, all those other titles are perfect instances India appears to have interested him greatly tremendously and certainly I haven't ever been to India he gives more the actual feeling <laughs> the place colour of the air smell of the thing the, these are a whole host of Anglo-Indian li- literature as we know but he more transferred to me what it would be like to wake up in the morning, what it would be like to see across the hills in the evening and that sort of thing. And indeed this uh, novel was adapted very successfully for television and yes. uh, Dame Sybil Thorndike took part in it and I met her yesterday and talked about this occasion. Oh. I asked her if she had met Ian Foster. Well, my impressions of him were of a very erudite and... Uh, mind you, he, he, I don't think he even came to one rehearsal. I saw him afterwards. I saw him when I was playing in Oxford afterwards, and he came and had a long talk to me. He was a very gracious, kindly gentleman with beautiful manners, and, oh, I liked him awfully. He was so very sympathetic to actors... I uh, I found him I found him quite moving uh, in the things he said about the play. It came out very well, I think, better as a television or a film than as a play. It's so lengthy, and you can do that better 
in bits on the, uh, in the television. And it's, the shape of it is more like a novel. Did you find the, the dialogue very interesting? I found the dialogue wonderful. A bit strange, but very interesting to speak. And so in character all the time. It was uh, Victorian in a way, but then, of course, the play was Victorian, wasn't it? Indeed it was, yes. Yes. And I found the language quite lovely. It's such a joy to have language with no slang and, and really beautiful sentences to speak. That gives me always such pleasure. Some of the modern ones don't give you the same pleasure, not to listen to or to speak. You met Foster, you said, afterwards, then? I met him afterwards. He came to see me when I was playing, and I can't remember what the play would have been, because I've been there several times since, um, in Cambridge. He came and sat in my dressing room for quite a while and talked to my husband and me. What did you talk about? We talked about plays, and... uh, he had a very interesting view of the theatre. He cared for the theatre very much. I wish there were more like him writing for the theatre now, with a more delicate, uh, unslaggy talk. There was no... And yet it all seemed perfectly natural. But there was no... Uh, no very uncomfortable words and things, which I hate. I don't know why we've got to be that way now. Uh, Miss Bowen, Foster talked a lot about his characters, and even 50 years after A Room Without a View, he talked about George and Lucy and what might have happened to them in the intervening uh, 50 <coughs> years. Uh, would you like to comment on this from a novelist's point of view? Uh, I would like to, to, to say that the people have such an extraordinary reality as persons that one certainly can feel just the same speculation about how they res- spent the rest of their lives, as one night with people one had been interested by. They are, to me, extremely, um, not only alive, but extremely palpable, and I see completely how they looked, so much so that when I see a television version, and I've only seen two, of two different Foster novels, I was rather appalled the thing was well done, but it's just like seeing a a televised version of the lives of people I rarely knew, and saying, oh, but they gave so-and-so black hair and made her small, she should have been fair and tall, all that sort of thing. I'm not (coughs) criticising, I think they were quite good technique, but it was a proof to me of how exceedingly well, down to the last fingernail almost, they were to me. I think that was a a gift of his. And one can easily see them... um, continuing on into life, except when they come to a violent end. I'm interested to know that he said he thought of death. As a matter of fact, I I feel rather the same as him. Mm. I killed off, or allowed to be killed, the heroine of my last story, Eva Trout, and a lot of people were angry with that, but to me that was the end. Indeed, earlier than that you did it, into the north. I did. I Mm. did, yes. Mm. And I think there's a death in... In quite a number of them. Somebody said to me, some English person, no, that's because you're Irish. I don't think it is. I think it's the the drama. But I'm glad he had that strong feeling about his characters. It's the Howard's End is the clearest. Howard's End is my favourite of the novels. I like it more than... And I'm sorry to hear he didn't care for it so much, but then uh, 
they say a novelist is always out in, or highly personal in their judgment of his or I work. People talk a lot about his style, whether it's simple or difficult and so on, and I have something here which he wrote about uh, Butler's work. He's, he was talking of this, but he says about himself, I like the idea of fantasy, of muddling up the actual and the impossible until the reader isn't sure which is which. Yes. I can see that. he, Of course, in the short stories, he does that a great deal. And I think that it was a big cheat. In Passage to India, I, what did happen in that cave? And uh, in the, the one other of the novels, I had that same feeling of... No, I don't think, perhaps. In the short stories, of course, he makes a thing of it. People go into a wood and they don't ever c- come out again. And yet all of the surroundings is... Um, the surroundings of that... Um, on the whole, when he's when he's by way of being prosaic and actual, he keeps t- t- to it well. That is the Jane Austen Jane Austenian side of him, which has a great fascination for me. But if he chooses to swoop off, I thought the love affair in Howard's End between Helen and the young clerk extremely improbable. It hardly could be called a love affair, but as we know, they had a a burst of passion and spent a night in a hotel. And there, I think, Foster has a limitation. I don't think the a certain side of life, the passionate s- sexual side of life between people of the opposite sexes is at all real to him. May I mention at this stage, there's a lot of comment and rumour these days of yes. an unpublished novel. Have you heard of this? I'd always heard of it e- existing, and I'm sure that it did. And um, I understand it was a novel rather after his own heart, and I think it may have had a homosexual theme. He felt unable to complete it, and two or three people I know have seen it. And the verdict was that it was no great loss, that somehow the very fact that he was working maybe on a theme that he thought was more his gave the book not the strength or the interest. I don't know how much of it was done there. Would you agree that some of this uh, homosexual thing runs through his novels? Oh, I think so tremendously. Mm. I think so. I think the attractions between the people, I think the the rather over-gentle feebleness of the heroes, of the central, the more civilised men, are generally rather, as somebody said, anti-heroes. Then there's always a primitive element of the young Italian in... um, uh, where angels feared a trade, mm. or the man in the longest journey, the half brother. Do you remember this sort of son of the soil man? It's the attraction towards this sort of strong masculine element, which um, I think it does, and I think partly it gives him his understanding of the feminine nature, mm. and he, yet it leaves the feminine nature incomplete. Mm. Do you see him as having a great meaning today, his writing? Um, not in the sense of a message for the age. I think the fact that he withdrew from his age, that he did withdraw from life, um, in a sense would rather separate him from that. As I say, by the young people like him, it's this individualised thing, and I think also a liberal point of view in his work. But I I wouldn't have thought he had a great deal to say in the present age because he abstained, in a way, from if he'd stayed along for ten foot for 20 years more and shown his hand more, chanced his arm. I think he'd have more influence now. I suppose such opinions and beliefs as I have have come out incidentally in my books. I remember Desmond McCarthy saying, never preach. If you have a sermon inside you, it's quite certain to come out incidentally and will be much more effective. 
And anyone who's cared to read my books will see what a high value I attach uh, to personal relationships and to tolerance. And I may add to pleasure. Pleasure one's not supposed to talk about in public, however much one enjoys it privately. But if, my, if I have had any influence, I should be very glad that it had induced people to enjoy this wonderful world into which we're born, and of course to help others to enjoy it too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.